This week on the Backtable Podcast. Oh, I, I think, again, going back to that uh, attention to detail, history is so important. The pathology is very, very important. You know, read every line. If, if you've got a high-grade TA, but you have the tiny little, you know, pathology report that says you have a one by two millimeter piece of tissue, that's not a TRBT, that's just a bladder biopsy. It's things like that. Uh, I think you, you just need to spend time, extra time with the bladder cancer patients. They, they, they really deserve the attention because uh, it, it matters. And, and I think in, in some cases, it's a life and death uh, type of uh, fork in the road when you make these decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Sia Denishman, from the University of Southern California, where he is a professor, director of urologic oncology, and an absolute thought leader in the field of bladder cancer. Really happy to have you here today, Sia. How's the morning going so far? Thank you, Aditya. It's going very well. Thanks. So maybe just start out with, you know, one-on-one. When patients are referred to you, obviously at a coronary referral center, never have them see a TURBT. If the imaging that they're coming in with is fairly consistent with the bladder tumor, do you still perform office cystoscopy or are you going straight to the operating room typically? Yeah, it's a great question, Aditya. I, I, uh, I think if it's convincing enough, I try to make it easier for the patient and, and skip that part. Uh, we know that almost all tumors in the bladder are malignant, whatever it is, we're going to have to take a biopsy or do a TORBT. The only caveat is, is when there is potential ureteral involvement or hydronephrosis uh, and their considerations for putting a stent in, you might want to know that preoperatively just for logistic purposes. Otherwise, if, if that's not an issue, then, then you can take the patient directly to the OR and sort of skip that. Yeah, so stents versus PCNs, if, if patients are coming in with, you know, bulky tumors, um, do you have a, a preference here? Uh, yes, I do. And I prefer to put in uh, PCNs uh, because there's some evidence that, that the upper tract recurrence rates are slightly higher when you put in stents. Um, I don't think that's been corroborated with multiple studies, but at least a few showing um, uh, higher upper tract recurrences also gives you the chance to really resect as much of the tumor in the bladder as possible, not having to worry about the ureteral orifice and making sure you're going to be able to find it to, to stent it. So, so yeah, I, I prefer it if possible. Yeah, I think that's exactly how I feel. I feel like there's emerging literature, very similar, like stents after ureteroscopic biopsies and so forth for upper tract cancer that suggest, um, you know, higher rates of recurrence when you essentially open up that typically one-way valve. Are you starting to use MRIs of the bladder at all in your practice? Uh, actually, interesting you mentioned that. I, I did a study a long time ago uh, using MRIs, uh, sort of dynamic contrast enhanced MRIs for, for bladder. I did about 137 of them um, consecutively. And in, in, in some instances, it is helpful, but our study did not show it's any better than CT in, in uh, discerning the sort of stage difference between a T2 and a T3. Um, it's helpful, I think, when you have uh, prior radiation or um, you can't use contrast, IV contrast and CT scans, uh, or there's question of uh, seminal vesicle involvement or prosthetic involvement. MRI does have a better you know, sort of tissue um, delineation there. But otherwise, um, trying to differentiate between a T2 and a T3 
I don't think it offers any additional uh, information. The other issue is that uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever heard of that patient, uh, but having done many of them, uh, this takes a long time. Uh, it's it's also the protocols used for bladder are very different than they have to they have to be they have to have the radiologists have some expertise in, in doing uh, bladder MRIs. These are not sort of your typical CT urograms that that we everyone's familiar with. So I think there are some nuances. I'm not sure it's worth the extra effort and potential cost uh, and also patient discomfort as, as these things can take up to uh, 45 minutes uh, sometimes to acquire. Yeah. I mean, we started a MRI program in my previous institution and certainly there was a learning curve. You know, I would say that some of our colleagues across the pond have bet pretty heavily on MRI and actually moving towards studies, properly done studies with office biopsies, you know, to confirm that they have in fact bladder cancer plus MRI. And if it's convincing enough, that's, that's grounds to move towards, you know, chemotherapy followed by cystectomy or, or, or chemo radiation, but it doesn't sound like you're sold on that, on that paradigm quite yet. Well, yeah, I, I, I look forward to seeing the studies. I think it's a different era. You know, what, what I did was over 10, 15 years ago. And I, I'm sure things have changed. And, and uh, you know, we, as you mentioned, we now have virads. But even if you look at that original paper on, on virads, uh, again, the number of times it changes your management, um, I, I think, is is very low. And, and also, it, it, you know, it's, it's pretty provocative uh, to go uh, directly from uh, percutaneous biopsy, for instance, uh, directly to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, there's a lot of information we, we glean from a TORBT. Uh, but that's what studies are for. I mean, I think that, that that's a very well uh, thought out uh, design study. And uh, I look forward to seeing seeing the uh, answers. I, I, I know that TRBT is a fairly morbid procedure and patients uh, suffer quite a bit from it. So if you can potentially skip that, all, all the better. Yeah. And the various venues that I've trained in practice, you know, there's always kind of that orderly M&M of a T-war gone somewhat wrong, you know, an anesthetic <laughs> complication, this, that, or the other. Now, what, what about if the patients are coming in with hydro? In your mind, is that, is that you know, by definition, T3 disease? Yeah, it's a great question. I, th I think for the most part, the answer is yes. Uh, I don't think that's always true. Um, Seth Lerner and, and I always have this uh, discussion back and forth about clinical staging of, of bladder cancer. Look, we, we, we do a terrible job doing uh, clinically staging bladder cancer. We're, we're wrong at least 30% of the time, right? And hydro, by definition, to me, uh, is almost certainly muscle invasive, uh, not necessarily T3. I think in, in many instances, um, uh, it's not necessarily outside the bladder wall into the perivascular fat, but, but rather just invasive into the muscular layer uh, that's obstructing the ureteral orifice. So almost by definition, muscle invasive and most likely T3, but not necessarily. Okay. Very, very practical information here. You know, I think oftentimes we're coming in with sicker patients, frail patients. You've got to really look at the whole, whole picture here. So let's just say you're, you're going forth for a TURBT, you know, whether they've had any extensive imaging or not, MRIs plus or minus, what are your goals of that TURBT? Yeah, I, I think when you, when you go in, the goals are complete resection. There, there are two reasons for that. Uh, one is you, A, you want adequate tissue. And I think if you have a large tumor, you, you often get adequate tissue to make a diagnosis, look for variant histology, but also, um, I tell the residents 
we're not sure this patient's going to go for a radical cystectomy. And if, if they choose chemo radiation or TMT, part of that TMT is, is going to be maximal resection. So you should probably aim to do that in the very beginning so that if the patient chooses TMT, then, then you're sort of already set up for it. I'm not sure there's enough evidence that doing a maximal TUR will render the patient uh, or, or increase the chances of uh, having T0 on final if you get neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I know there's some retrospective data, but I wonder if that's just a selection bias of, of the patients who were getting, you know, sort of maximal resection by virtue of their tumor being smaller. So I certainly don't think it hurts. I think the data is sort of going towards better responses. I certainly don't think that doing extensive TURs leads to metastases. Um, there's tons of circulating tumor cells seen after TURs, uh, but it's interestingly, I don't, I don't think they land anywhere or lead to metastases. So my goal is always to do as, as good a resection as possible, uh, to, to, to have as much information as possible, potentially help with both neoadjuvant chemotherapy uh, or you know, uh, TMT if, you, if the patient so chooses. Yeah, whole, wholeheartedly agree. And, um, I think it is always something to at least consider, you know, at the end of the day, let's say you get new agent chemotherapy and a cystectomy and you wind up being T0, you're pretty much, you know, should be home free for all practical purposes. You know, what are the contributions of surgery in that? And what are the contributions of chemotherapy? Likely impossible to know without some marker lesion studies, which are probably not really warranted, but, um, you know, something to think about and in an effort to get a complete resection, do you use blue light enhancement on your initial TURs typically? Yeah, good question. I, I do. Uh, we have the luxury of having it widely available to us, uh, both in the clinic and, and in, in the OR. I think it helps in, in multiple ways. One is, as you said, to see the edges of the tumors, even, even if it's going to be muscle invasive, uh, we do a better TUR. Uh, we see whether or not there's CIS and resect that. And also for training purposes, I think that the, the residents really get a uh, lot of feedback when they've done the TUR and sort of turn on the blue light and say, wow, I missed that corner, even though I went wide in that area. Uh, so, so, you know, we, we, and plus we don't always know whether or not it's going to be muscle invasive. Sometimes you go in and you say, oh, absolutely. <laughs> You've done thousands of these and you say, this is absolutely muscle invasive and it comes back T1, right? And so, um, so I, I tend to use it whenever I can. Now, when I have a really nasty tumor and it's not going to be helpful, I'm not going to do a maximal TUR in a seven centimeter tumor, the, the obvious sort of um, tumors. I, I, I don't do blue light there, but, but if it's a smaller one and I'm not a hundred percent sure it's muscle invasive, absolutely. Yeah. I think, it, you know, again, just for, for training purposes, as you mentioned, resecting carcinoma in situ that may be concomitant with, with muscle invasive disease. I, I think it's a nice, nice option. So, you know, with maximal TURs, obviously you can have bladder perforations and, um, you know, I think it's one of the things that we all fear and, and try to, try to avoid so, so much as is within our control without, of course, we could talk about this at length, but general kind of thoughts on how bladder perforation impacts your management. Let's just, you know, broadly put it in non-muscle invasive and muscle invasive scenarios. Yeah, tough one and, and not something we like to see uh, at all. Um, uh, and of course, we take every precaution we can to, to try to avoid that. If it does happen, um, and it happens more often than I think we talk about, um, micro, at least microperforations, uh, where there's some seepage. 
surprisingly and shockingly, I, I don't think we get a lot of seeding outside the bladder, provided you don't continue using, you know, high pressure irrigation to, and, and, you know, to a reasonable degree, stop the procedure uh, as soon as you can, if you see a perforation. I tend to be fairly conservative in, in management. It doesn't happen often, but uh, if you, the only time you, I think it's indicated to actually go in and, and either repair the cystotomy, which I've never done, uh, or, or just place a drain or, or irrigate the fluid is a, a large perforation on patients clinically not doing well. And you've got large volumes of uh, fluid in the, in the abdomen, which again, should not be common. Um, you, you should always be aware of how much fluid is going in and out roughly. Um, and, and make sure that you don't get a, a delta of five liters that is ending up in the abdomen. Uh, I always teach the residents, uh, always have one hand on the abdomen back and forth to make sure the abdomen's soft continues to be soft and we're not getting distended. Now we say that, um, and you have a patient who's 280 pounds on the table and <laughs> their abdomen is quite rotund and, uh, it's, it's difficult. So it's not always easy to palpate, you know, a fluid collection. You can probably dump two liters in the pelvis and not know it in, in a morbidly obese patient. So again, sort of vigilance about how much fluid is going in, um, and out roughly making sure you're, you're keeping an eye on the uh, suction device and, and, and how much is, is coming out. And then in terms of oncologic management, say, you know, the path comes back muscle invasive and they had a perforation. Does that broadly affect the way that you're going to manage them? Yeah, I think it, it certainly pushes, uh, me to do neoadjuvant chemotherapy in that setting and, and then followed by, uh, cystectomy. What I have seen, uh, with very large tumors, um, uh, and I have one unfortunate case uh, that I'm managing right now is the unrecognized ones where a tumor does end up on the outside of the bladder and, and eventually, uh, maybe six months or a year later, uh, will grow sort of from the outside back into the bladder or just you have an uh, extra vesicle growth. Uh, this, this was it, the current case I have is with a non-muscle invasive uh, uh, patient who really had nothing going on in the bladder. Meanwhile, this, this tumor was, was growing on the outside from a TUR from two years prior and uh, had had vigilant follow-up. Yeah, certainly, again, systemic therapy followed by by cystectomy to make sure we re remove all the uh, surrounding tissue that may have been affected. Okay, so now that let's just say that we've confirmed muscle invasive bladder cancer and haven't ruptured the bladder. Staging, CT scan, chest, seven, and pelvis, PET scans, any, any strong preferences one way or the other? Yeah, my strong preference is for a well-performed CT at uh, chest, abdomen, pelvis with IV contrast. Uh, it gives you all the information you need to know. PET scans are, are usually not additionally helpful. Uh, you have uh, too many false positives and too many false negatives. Uh, the only the only time would be at an indeterminate uh, lung nodule. You're not sure uh, before cystectomy. It doesn't make sense. A patient has T2, no lymph nodes, and suddenly has a uh, is a non-smoker, for instance, and has a eight millimeter, nine millimeter nodule. You know, perhaps a PET scan might be helpful in that setting and in reassuring you that that if it's negative, that that's not a metastasis. But even in that setting, I, I try to go for biopsy rather than a PET scan because that that'll give you your definitive answer or just benefit of the doubt and, 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 uh, move on with your treatment and, and see what happens to that lung nodule uh, a few months later. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, you know, well done CT scan to really understand the anatomy is what I prefer, but you know, I think there's also maybe some institution specific factors where PET scans preferred one way or the other. So let's talk about suspicious pelvic lymph nodes, couple of lymph nodes, a centimeter, you know, 1.2, 1.3 centimeters, all confined to the, to the true pelvis. 
how do you kind of approach that? Typically, uh, we will move on with uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, or if the patient's cisplatin ineligible, we'll uh, enroll into a clinical trial and then see what happens to those lymph nodes and sort of retrospectively stage the patient. Uh, most likely they are positive. Um, if you know, you've got this random lymph node in the obturator fossa or the, between the external iliacs and common iliacs, those, those are most likely um, positive. A lot of times you cannot biopsy these, uh, they're right between the vessels. And, and so I'm, I'm not a big fan of biopsy, which puts you at a little bit of a, uh, impasse and you have to, you have to clinically stage the patients, uh, according to what, what you see. Yeah. The answer I think is most likely if you have muscle invasive disease, you're going to move on to neoadjuvant therapy, uh, and then assess those nodes. If they get smaller then most likely they were involved. I prefer doing a cystectomy on those patients rather than, uh, uh chemo radiation because uh, you, you really want to know the status of the nodes and, and remove all potential uh, sites of uh, disease. And where you generally do, say, four cycles of induction chemotherapy, restage, and then an additional two, or any any modification to the regimens? No, I I, I don't think there's. Um, we we just do the four of neoadjuvant cisplatin-based chemotherapy uh, surgery, and then assess sort of what what's left behind. In the past, I think we're. Uh, if you had uh, residual uh, T3 or N plus disease after neoadjuvant therapy, we were accruing to uh, the ambassador trial and the uh, adjuvant PEMBRO trials. But now with, with um, uh, Checkmate uh, 274, having reported uh, a disease-free survival benefit, I, I think more, more patients are now being considered for adjuvant immunotherapy with nivolumab based on that trial. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let's, let's spend a few minutes talking about variant histologies that, that are oftentimes encountered. I feel like this is something that can be confusing and maybe we'll just kind of run through the gamut and, um, you know, get a quick neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Yes or no. How about a, a pure squamous? Ha, uh, you're, you're, you're tying my hands. Um, can I say it depends or is this a move on? Yes or no? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. No. I'd love to hear your kind of thought process here. 100%. Okay. Sorry to make it complicated, but, but I think squamous is, is uh, difficult because if, if I have a small tumor and, and it's pure squamous, I, I may skip the neoadjuvant chemotherapy and go straight to surgery and consider adjuvant radiation therapy. If I have a very bulky tumor, then, then I do try to use um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy to refer to, and these are, I think, case-by-case -case basis uh, discussion at tumor boards and seeing uh, what we can do. But uh, cisplatin is effective in some squames, but not all. Um, so I, I think it depends. I think the Egyptians have some uh, data on other regimens being effective as well. Uh, but those are perhaps different than the squamous cells that we see in the U.S. Um, so I, I, I'll go with a maybe on that one. Is that okay? No, totally. I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, you can read the Egyptian literature and it's a, you know, it seems like it behaves a little bit more indolently, a bit of a different disease state than, you know, the pure squamous, which are, you know, admittedly very uncommon here, but I, I, it resonates. And then, you know, for the sake of completeness, if it's you're at the old NOS with squamous differentiation, is that going to be a chemo candidate typically in your hands? If it's, I'm sorry, if it's what? If it's, um, primarily urothelial NOS garden variety with squamous Scram. differentiation. Absolutely. That's a yes. Okay. Fantastic. What about adenos? Uh, that's a, that's a no on that. Yeah. Whether you're or non uracal start out with surgery, get the histology and exactly take it from there. Yeah. You do, um, endoscopies upper, lower and so forth and in, in patients with adenos to rule out any other primary. Now, certainly, uh, well, 
uh, I think it's just, if it's very obvious, um, you have a negative CT scan, you can probably move forward. I think, you know, the classic teaching and the textbook teaching is, yeah, look for, look for colon primary. But uh, honestly, if, you, if you're going to have a colon primary, that's got to be big enough to metastasize directly right to the Eurekas, that, that's going to be fairly rare. So if it's fairly obvious, then then we move forward. I think the difficult ones are the ones where um, it's locally advanced and it's going from the dome of the bladder directly into the uh, sigmoid next next to it. And and you really don't know whether whether it originated from the sigmoid or the or the Eurekas. They both can be mucinous adenocarcinomas. So th- those are the slightly difficult ones uh, for me. But I think at the end of the day, the treatment is is pretty much the same, uh, right? We, we would do a partial cystectomy with a sigmoid resection on block. Um, and I, I don't think it really changes whether, whether, what, where the tissue of origin was. Yeah, fair, fair enough. Um, but in, ter- you know, in terms of strictly chemotherapy, oftentimes, especially when they've got these scenarios like fistulas, the rates of infectious complications and so forth really, really skyrocket. How about, uh, plasma cytoid? Yeah, really difficult one. And I think we're really lacking data. Um, I think they do respond just, just personal experience. I think they do respond to cisplatin based uh, chemotherapy. Uh, the tumors do shrink and I've had a few PT zeros. The very, very unfortunate thing is that despite having a PT zero and what seems to be a success because it metastasizes or spreads so quickly, um, uh, and, and goes throughout the peritoneum, uh, those patients are still at very high risk of developing peritoneal carcinomatosis later. So my answer is still yes on the chemo. I try to try to move forward unless I have a PT1, obviously, uh, um, I, I try to get, get those patients as soon as possible, but, but I think they, they do respond. We certainly need more, uh, data. Uh, I think we, we need to sort of pool our efforts together. Uh, plasma cytotes behave very, very differently than all the other um, variants uh, in urothelial carcinoma. So we need more data there. Yeah, I think it's probably kind of implicit for these variant histologies worthwhile having your GU pathologist take a look just to make sure we kind of know what we're dealing with. And then I would wholeheartedly agree that, you know, plasma cytoids certainly catch my attention in a big way and can also be some of the nastiest cases if you actually make a dysystectomy with that kind of pagetoid spread into the peritoneum and, and things can be quite fixed. In some of those scenarios, though, shockingly, you're like, oh my gosh, this is, this is really bad. And then, you know, sure enough, there are pathological T0 as, as you kind of mentioned. Well, I kind of like not to oversimplify, but f- for the sake of time, perhaps, you know, if it's urothelial with some degree of variant differentiation, still stay fairly aggressive with, um, with chemotherapy, squamous and, uh, adenos being kind of the outliers. If they're pure squamous, pure adeno, it is case by case, as you mentioned, but those are ones where I feel like, um, moving straight forward to definitive therapy makes more sense. And, and does variant histology impact your counseling for surgery versus radiation? Yeah, great question. And I, I think most of the data, as, as you know, uh, stems from, uh, in, in the radiation uh, uh, experience, stems from pure urothelial or minor uh, variant histology. Having said that, um, there is a European urology um, article that, that does include some of the variant histologies, and it seems to be um, effective, that radiation seems to be effective in those settings as well. But, but the numbers are very, very small. Uh, I remember uh, discussing this with our radiation oncologist said, oh, yeah, it works in the nested variant. And I said, well, look at this table. There's one nested variant in, published in the entire literature here. We can't make we can't make determinations." So yet to be seen, um, I think they're probably not ideal, ideally suited for radiation because of lack of data. 
these cases are rare. Uh, but what really impacts my decision is having variant histology in, in high grade T1, even if it's re resected, um, certainly that's a marker of upstaging. It's a marker of biology of the tumor to begin with. And so I'm very, very wary doing conservative uh, treatment for patients with high grade T1 and variant histology. Completely agree. So maybe let's just kind of walk through your cystectomy versus TMT talk. You know, patient counseling, first things first, management of the bladder. And of course, we'll talk about diversion and, and those aspects. But, uh, you know, just, just 101, how does, how does this kind of go? Do you all have a multidisciplinary bladder clinic? Uh, we don't have a clinic, um, a multi-D clinic uh, for bladder cancer. We do, however, have a very close-knit group and, and uh, you know, we have very, very busy clinic. So I think, you know, it really comes down to the urologist to, to dis describe all this uh, to the patient and, and, and sort of just like we discussed neoadjuvant chemotherapy, um, I think we're sort of the first stop in, in making these uh, big decisions of where the patient's going to go. Look, I think I've, I've matured through the years um, and what we used to think, you know, many years ago as surgery was better than chemo radiation. Uh, you see the data over and over again, whether it's from Toronto, from Mass General, or, or from Europe, specifically England, that TMT is effective. However, there are a lot of uh, sort of limitations um, and or selection biases in these studies that have to be acknowledged. I think it works best in a patient with muscle invasive disease, T2 to T3, N0, at most unilateral hydro and the patient being able to A, to tolerate and come back for the uh, maximal resection and, and the, the radiation and the chemotherapy. There's a lot involved, and I think there's so many limitations. Um, CIS is the other one. If you have extensive CIS, they're, they're not an ideal candidate. We have SWOG 1806 open here, and I try very hard to accrue uh, for our radiation oncologist for, for that trial. And um, I was just <laughs> writing her an email. I said, look, out of the last 10 TURs that I did, that I tried to line up for you, only two were candidates because of these various limitations. The tumor has to be small. We have, we have tumors that are greater than seven centimeters. So I think 1806 is a very well thought out um, trial. This is the chemo radiation plus minus atezolizumab uh, for definitive therapy of muscle invasive bladder cancer. And that's a, that's a, the inclusion criteria for that trial is a, is a great place to sort of think about where it's appropriate to do TMT. So if the patient is a candidate, I certainly will uh, offer it. Uh, I will mention it. I, I will tell them that the cystectomy rates in modern TMT series is 15%, not the 25, 30 that we used to quote in the past. And that if they have um, recurrence, most likely they're going to get a salvage cystectomy. If it's early, they're probably going to be fine. But the, the chance of getting a neobladder perhaps is somewhat compromised, although we have done neobladders post-radiation. It seems to be okay in very, very select patients as well. Okay. So I think it sounds like a pretty fair and balanced uh, discussion. And you know, it's, it's funny, Sia, the, the more people I kind of talk to that have some perspective on things, whether it's prostate artery embolization for BPH, you know, I feel like most people kind of are able to step back and say, you know what, there's a lot of good options out there. There's good non-surgical options, so to speak, out there. And you know, I, I kind of hear that coming across, I think even in my relatively short career, recognizing that there's, you know, plenty of good options for patients. And the fact that there's not one perfect one for everybody, you know, tells, tells us something. Are, are you calling me mature, Aditya? I'm calling you wise, Sia. Yeah, you're, 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 you're aging well. I'm calling you wise. It's, it's, it's totally intended to be a compliment. 
Okay. So I, I agree. You know, I think a fair balanced um, discussion and, you know, there's so much coming in, so many things to consider patients coming in at long distances, as you mentioned, you know, the coordination of medical oncology, radiation oncology, urology, it's not trivial, et cetera. You know, you, you kind of make a decision one way or the other. Um, we also don't have a multi formal multi D bladder program here, but, uh, you know, it's text exchanges, cell phone calls, direct communication, and, and really trying to get the patient through this. So let's talk, you know, about the fun part about this, uh, surgery now. And, uh, you know, for the sake of kind of keeping it focused, we'll, we'll stick to oncologic principles and maybe leave it as open versus robotic should be whatever the surgeon is most comfortable with and able to execute, um, using sound oncological principles. Is that fair? Absolutely. Totally agree. And then, um, had, had a couple of really nice sessions with, uh, Angie Smith on kind of perioperative and preoperative optimization. So we won't spend a lot of time on, you know, kind of nutrition counseling, smoking counseling, exercise counseling, ERAS type of things, but, um, you know, just kind of like jumping on into it. Um, you know, what are, what are the kind of SIA pearls that go to the residents and fellows, you know, when you're, when you're sitting there, it's July 2nd and you're about to do your first cystectomy <laughs> with, you know, the chief or the fellow. It's uh, details, details, details. I think it all starts uh, before the operation, knowing the patient uh, really well, what the plan is uh, going forward. Everyone thinks, okay, we're just doing a cystectomy neobladder. It's, it's Monday <laughs> and that's what we're doing. But uh, I think uh, devil's in the details. Um, having said that, I mean, the, the surgery itself is, is also uh, regimented in that uh, we, we always do, you know, fairly wide resection around the bladder. Uh, at USC, as you know, we, we've always, for the past uh, three decades, done an extended lymph node dissection up to the IMA uh, until we get the results of the SWAGAS 1011 to see whether the extended lymph node dissection makes a difference. We continue to do that, except for patients who have CIS only and are BCG refractory. I, I will do a limited node dissection because the chance of having lymph node metastases is, is very low. Now, as opposed to our um, gynecological colleagues and some other colleagues, this is not a lymph node sampling. As, as you know, this is a complete lymph node dissection because it can be curative. Uh, I think some people still mistake this as a as a diagnostic procedure, but it's absolutely can be therapeutic in, in a fair number of patients. So, you know, we've had patients with five, eight lymph nodes positive no for the systemic therapy and are, are cured from their disease. So it is possible. So that means a meticulous lymph node dissection means a complete skeletonization of all the vessels in the involved areas, whether you do a standard or an extended node dissection, taking the pedicles widely. And in, in males, just quickly, uh, we try to do nerve sparing uh, in most patients who are getting orthotopic diversions. It may help with continence and certainly some preservation of erectile function in those who, uh, in whom it, that's important. So uh, we're doing more and more nerve sparing procedures. What's really changed uh, over the past few years, um, over the past 10 years maybe, uh, is, is the female uh, cystectomy. I always tell everyone that, that that's eight different operations, um, whether you've had a hysterectomy in the past uh, or not, uh, whether you're preserving the ovaries, the vagina, the uterus, um, complete female uh, organ preservation, that all depends on the where the tumor is located. Uh, we're doing more and more uh, female organ preservation. I really, really caution um, surgeons, however, doing that to make sure there's no, not a posterior located tumor. Uh, that they can easily involve the vagina. And so you can preserve all the organs and then leave a positive margin. And, and that's a death sentence for the patient. So we have to be really careful in, in doing organ preservation in, in females. More and more, we're realizing removing ovaries really has, has no impact oncologically. We can certainly leave those behind. 
Uh, but but that's been the, the the main difference. And then the meticulous handling of the urethra uh, for orthotopic diversion. I think the less you do, uh, the more preservation of, of continence, particularly in women, not taking down any of the periurethral uh, sort of support structures and making sure you have you have uh, preservation of all that um, uh, endopelvic uh, uh, fascia and periurethral sort of support structures. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, you know, with one question that kind of rose to my mind when you mentioned BCG refractory, do you see patients that have progressed to muscle invasive disease from high-risk non-muscle invasive disease any different than those presenting with de novo muscle invasive disease? Yeah, I always thought that they have worse prognosis. And, and there are some opposing, I think, literature on this. Um, I think the most recent one from MD Anderson um, or from uh, MSK, I believe, uh, uh, said that if, if you get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, you, you're pretty much the same uh, as the other ones. But uh, the numbers get pretty small. I think mo most of the data suggests that if you progress through to muscle invasive disease, that you probably have a worse prognosis, which comes into the discussion of high-grade T1 because you have this decision of early cystectomy versus uh, doing conservative therapy with BCG. And pay, you know the, the logical thought process is, well, why don't we try BCG first? If it doesn't work, then I'll go to cystectomy. The problem with that thought process is that you could be fine at three months, six months, nine months, and then, you know, at a year and a half, suddenly you, right under your nose, uh, you went from having nothing to suddenly T3 disease. Now you're getting neoadjuvant chemo. Now you have YPT2 disease and maybe a positive lymph node, and you're certainly at a disadvantage. So, yeah, I think the patients who progress, uh, that's why you, you have to do worse. And, and that's why you, you have to pay meticulous attention to those indicators of of progression. If you have multifocal disease, if you have, uh, you know, T1 with CIS, if that's why we use blue light to be able to really map out the, the bladder and the pathology as well as we can. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just something that I've conjectured about, but you know, we, I guess we could also imagine that, you know, just like a, lo a low grade tumor can, can seed and that's what we give, you know, gemcitabine, myosin, et cetera, that multiple scrapings, you can have tumors now sitting directly in the muscle layers as your, as your patient that you previously described the epithelium you know, heals over it and you've got something going out the back. And I always tell the residents, whether it's upper tract cancer or whether it's, you know, high risk, non-muscle based cancer, you can't skip out on your axial imaging. You could have something growing right out through the back and feeling quite fine that everything looks good um, endoscopically. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that, um, you know, there's some pretty interesting data, maybe some, you know, molecular correlates suggesting more or less of a incidence of DNA damage response and progressors versus de novo, but it's, it's, probably a little premature to start making any decisions on. And it's a rare enough clinical entity that I think, a, you know, a trial would, would be a little challenging at, at this stage. Right. So I agree on the um, lymph node dissection. Presacral nerves, are those always a, a part of the uh, nodal dissection for you? Always has, yeah. And in, in our data set, 5% of patients who have uh, lymph node positive disease have them in the, in the presacral nodal packet. And what about the ureteral margins? Do you send frozen sections? I do still, uh, despite the evidence against it, um, I, I think ultimately I agree that it doesn't make much of a difference, but it's such an easy thing to do. I, I, I'd hate to, it does increase the risk of upper tract um, recurrence, even though it's pretty rare. I do like to get negative margins, um, at, at least. 
but I, I don't make a big deal of it if I do two or three and it's positive or atypical. At, the, at, the, at some point, I go as high as I can and send that for permanent section uh, because I'm, I'm not going to do an ileoureter on something that's atypical. Not all of those turn into something. Same thing with urethra, by the way. Uh, over the years, again, I've sort of thought less and less of a positive, quote, positive urethral margin to an orthotopic neobladder. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about invasive. That is an absolute contraindication. I'm talking about the atypical sort of frozen section, possible CIS type of picture. I will That will not divert me from doing an ortho, orthotopic diversion uh, on that patient. The urethral recurrence rates, even in that setting, are fairly low. It's less than 10%. So, uh, you know, I'll have a conversation with the patient, see how badly they want a neobladder. Most of them, most of them once they've made the decision, uh, want it. So, we have done intraurethral uh, BCG for those who have recurred. And I can tell you that in my experience, I've not had to do a urethrectomy for a urethral recurrence in that setting. Most of them have been just de novo, you know, happened to have a urethral recurrence. They had prostatic stromal involvement and later developed a urethral recurrence. Do you ever do prophylactic urethrectomies if you know that they have stromal invasion? No. Yeah. I, I also think that's of historical interest only. Yes. <laughs> kind of come through the literature early on in my career and I came across my first one. I was like, yeah, I think that one's gone, gone by the wayside. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, removal wise, we've talked about obviously getting out the bladder and the prostate nerve sparing when, when feasible in men and women, it sounds like gynecologic organ sparing in the appropriate selected patient is a consideration. And that's certainly been my, my sense as well that, you know, kind of the whole steady in pelvic exempt is maybe not best for everyone. You know, I certainly saw a fair amount of, uh, young female patients, um, just kind of anecdotally, a lot of them of Hispanic origin in, in Dallas that, you know, were still interested in having children and so forth. And, um, organ sparing, um, was a part of the, uh, armamentarium. And I, and I do think that, you know, you're starting to get into some low incident scenarios now, organ sparing, female neobladders and you know, my, my opinion is those should probably be taking places at centers that do quite a bit of these operations. Any kind of thoughts on centralization for, for bladder cancer care? Yeah, I think it's absolutely, it's ideal. I think there's plenty of literature out there to suggest that there's less complications, morbidity, mortality. Uh, is one third of high volume uh, hospitals than than lower volume hospitals. But look, it's difficult. I think that's going into a whole other discussion um, of of centralization of expert care, uh, which is oftentimes not possible in Southern California. And uh, I think you'll see the difficulties here. There, there's so many of these managed care organizations that just don't allow the patients to go. Uh, seek um, expert care, and, and many of these cystectomies and things are done at low volume centers, at, uh, at low volume providers. And I, I think honestly, it's a very uh, it's a disservice to the patient. These these are patients who can be well served in in multiple uh, institutions that are around in in Southern California and and beyond. So I, I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with the centralization of care for these um, uh, difficult complex cases such as bladder cancer. But in reality, you know, especially even when the patient has good insurance, I think the logistics of coming back and forth to a facility that's um, a few hundred miles away is difficult for bladder cancer, older patients, mo mobility issues, ride issues, and, and the back and forth, uh, and, and especially the you know, various complications that happen, you'd, you'd want the patient here. So these are challenging. Yeah, no, I think they are challenging. And you know, certainly a center like USC, which I think is known for having fairly ultra high rates of neobladders is, is going to be kind of a 
testament to when you're at a place that does a lot of a, you could say a complicated operation and maybe you're augmenting with the slight increased bit of, you know, potential for complication with the neobladder. You know, these, these should be done by people that do a lot of them. So when you're having your, your kind of diversion talk, what are going to be your, you know, absolute and relative contraindications? <laughs> and again, not the, many. The, yeah, there's not many. This will be a short conversation. No, uh, look again, like you said, we 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 do. I think more neobladders than than most around the country. And and over the years, I've sort of examined the various contraindications. I told you we discussed one of them being the positive urethral margin. Uh, certainly, an invasive uh, tumor is still a contraindication. The um, patient age is certainly not a contraindication. Um, I think uh, ECOG status or performance status is, is more of an indication uh, for choosing one diversion versus another. I do have a, what I think is a fairly balanced uh, discussion. This is a, a topic on its own. I, you know, one of the things I think that, that when urologists are presenting the urinary diversion options to patients is They'll describe the three diversions, but they'll say, yeah, iliocondro, it's really simple. You don't have to do anything and it just comes out. The complications are less. It's a faster surgery. Neobladder is fine, but, and the gestures and what follows is a negative uh, sort of connotation and infection rates are higher. It's more complicated. And, and the patient said, and you have to catheterize yourself and you'll be leaking. And the patient thinks, why, why do I want that? I say the same thing, but I go into more detail. You might have to catheterize yourself. That rate here at USC is 10 to 15%. We've published on this multiple times. It's not the same catheter, catheter that you had after TORBT. This is in and out. You don't have a prostate in males. It goes in easier. So as soon as you say catheter, pa patients think of the TORBT experience. Uh, the other part is incontinence. Again, you just saying you'll leak. The patients are thinking their bed is wet. No, that's not the case. 90% of patients are continent during the day. At night, you know, 50% uh, of patients are leaking, uh, but they're leaking into a pad or a diaper and they're typically not completely wet or soaked. So I think characterizing these will help the patients decide one way uh, or the other. Um, and I think you know, having a standardized sort of approach and discussion uh, with the patients and, and really saying, well, in, in my hands, it might not like this, but other centers uh, perhaps have, have better outcomes or they do it more often. Uh, having said that, you know, it doesn't take us much longer to do a neobladder just because of the frequency and all the, the team that's involved. You know, it takes us about 45 more minutes to, to do a neobladder than, a, than an ileal conduit. So it's not a long operation for us. The complication rates at USC are not higher. In fact, if you look at our series, our complication rates are higher for ileal conduits because of that selection bias of the older, sicker patients getting ileal conduits. So ironically, uh, that complication rate is higher. CKD is a big one. And we have a paper coming out very shortly that will challenge the notion of CKD being a contraindication. Now, I'm not talking about creatinine and the, you know, mid twos and someone who's progressively having renal failure, but this notion that, that we have a cutoff and, and a creatinine of 1.8 or 2.0 is the cutoff. I've done plenty of neobladders in patients uh, with borderline renal function. And the key here is acid-base balance. And you have to uh, uh, give them sodium bicarbonate to balance the acid-base uh, issues. And then about three months out and six months out, once the macrovilli will flatten and you get less exchange um, of, of the uh, bicarbonate and chloride, uh, then the patients settle down and their renal function will, will actually remain completely the same. Simply stated, a neobladder in and of itself will not lead to further deterioration of your kidney function. That makes no sense. Why would it? It's really the acid-base balance, and that's all. 
uh, once you manage the asset base uh, issues, then 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 that's fine. It, it is work though, uh, and and you do need to keep the patient on a much closer sort of follow up uh, routine. So those are uh, so the ma major ones for me are liver disease. I, I would not do any kind of diversion in liver disease, invasive tumor, uh, someone whose manual dexterity uh, is not good in case they do need to catheterize or someone who's just not motivated, uh, someone who's sedentary and not motivated to have a neobladder and they really could care less one way or the other, I think are better served with an, with an ileal conduit. And when you do conduits, any tips and tricks to prevent peristomal hernias? Yeah. So, so, you know, oftentimes, uh, um, you're taught to put your two fingers there and stretch that thing open and, and, uh, try to make it as uh, opening. And I, and I challenge the residents, I say, show me one case where you have obstruction at the fascial level. And, and that's, you just never have that. The obstruction is always either at the stomal level or, or some of the process. So don't put two fingers, don't stretch it so much. All you need is, is enough of an opening for the conduit to get through. That's one. Two is, look, it's inevitable. At least 25, um, maybe up to 50% of patients develop some form of um, peristomal hernia. My partner, Huma uh, Jalada, uh, just finished a, a, a randomized uh, trial of a mesh, uh, pre-placing a mesh versus not uh, to, for prevention of hernias. That's 150 patients, and, and we await the results. We don't, we don't know what the results show. So maybe in the future, that might be um, uh, something in our armamentarium to, to prevent these uh, hernias. Having said that, most of them are actually uh, completely asymptomatic. There's something we see on, on radiographically on CT scans on follow-up, and the patient doesn't even know it or realize it. So rarely is it an actual issue where you need to fix it. Yeah, I think just like you mentioned for the handling of urethra, this is going to be surgical technique. It's going to be, you know, removing a disc of skin, not going crazy, not, you know, mangling the fascia or the musculature as you bring it through, trying to leave some... I, I try to leave a little bit of mesentery all the way out to the you know distalmost end of the um, conduit as well. Just the little things to really keep that whole apparatus, which is of course what the patient interfaces with daily, well. The other thing is we do a Turnbull stoma as opposed to an end stoma. We've always done a Turnbull, uh, which many are not familiar with. They haven't done it in their training, so they don't they haven't seen it. But a Turnbull uh, really preserves the mesentery to the stoma itself. And, and I think really uh, decreases the chance of stomal stenosis. We, we essentially just don't see it. Uh, we see all the other complications and we see peristomal hernias, but we, do, we don't see stomal stenosis because the well-preserved mesentery to the, to the stoma. You know, as we kind of wind down here, cutaneous ureterostomies, ureterosigmoidostomies, are, do those have a role in, uh, in your practice at all? Ureter six, no. I think unless you want to go back to the the, the uh, early 1900s, but but uh, cutaneous ureterosomies, I think, are underused um, and uh, underappreciated. I think in the proper patient with uh, already dilated ureter, it can be an option. And there are plenty of series out there that, that are in the uh, number in the hundreds uh, that that have adequate uh, uh, follow up and. and they do fine. I still do worry about the stenosis, obviously, um, but uh, I don't have a large experience. But of the ones I, that I had to do imperatively uh, for either bladder cancer or other have done quite well, surprisingly. And, you know, you can't have an obese patient. So I think there are a lot of uh, limitations to patient uh, selection, but it is underused. And we always think we have to do an ileal conduit and not necessarily. Yeah, I, I also don't have an extensive experience. I did a few. It was those kind of tough cases where you have an older, sicker, frail patient where you're not ready to say, let's not do anything. But, you know, every bit of the operation is going to take its toll. 
And I did three and I, you know, waited six months just to make sure there's no catastrophes and things went okay. Yeah, I would say it's again going to be, you know, part of that toolkit for, for people that think about this disease. Well, see, this has been, you know, incredibly educational for me as well. I love to hear perspectives from people that spend a lot of time thinking about, about this disease. Any, any kind of, uh, you know, parting thoughts for the listenership as we wind this down? Oh, I, I think, again, going back to that attention to, to detail, history is so important. The pathology is very, very important. You know, read every line. If, if you've got a high-grade TA, but you have the tiny little, you know, pathology report that says you have a one by two millimeter piece of tissue, that's not a TRBT, that's just a bladder biopsy. It's things like that. Uh, I think you, you just need to spend time, extra time with the bladder cancer patients. They, they, they really deserve the attention because uh, it, it matters. And, and I think in, in some cases, it's a life and death uh, type of uh, fork in the road when you make these decisions. One other thing I want to mention, uh, just real quick, um, uh, when I forgot to mention with the plasma cytoid, we, we checked these tumor markers, uh, epithelial tumor markers, CA-125, CA-199, and particularly CA-199 has been uh, uh, prognostically uh, an independent prognostic factor, but it's, it, in plasma cytoid, it's, it's highly elevated um, in, in most of the cases. So you can use it as a tumor marker. Uh, in other urothelial cancers, it's elevated in about 10 or 15% of patients, and it can be prognostic and something to follow. So just another uh, small little pearl that most people don't use. It's easy. It's cheap. Uh, if it's elevated, you can use it. All right. Well, that's, a, that's a good one to end on, Sia. Well, uh, you know, look forward to catching up here on the, uh, on the West Coast in person soon rather than later. And thanks again. Really appreciate it. 